Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. On today's episode, we are going to have a special guest, M. Andrew Tennyson, who is the author of Killing the Bear, Surviving Teen Addiction. It's a true story of teen addiction and a guide for parents and others on how to help. A little bit about the book. Over the past 50 years, the face of addiction has changed in America. It has become much younger. It is estimated that 90% of serious problems with alcohol and drugs in our country begin between the ages of 12 and 20. Unfortunately, our efforts towards prevention and treatment of drug and alcohol use by youth have not kept pace with this new reality. Programs such as DARE have made no discernible difference in the rate of teen alcohol and drug use, and only 30% of our treatment programs for teen addiction for addiction provide services to adolescents. For parents who have found themselves dealing day-to-day with a teen caught in the grips of addiction, the gap between this new reality and the inadequate remedies is often overwhelming. As they see their teens slip into patterns of behavior common to addiction, apathy, aggression, dishonesty, and hopelessness, they find themselves lost and terrified. Despite a successful career in the field of mental health, Andrew Tennyson was one of these such parents. While he knew how to help children and teens who had suffered from abuse and neglect, he knew nothing about how to help his own son, Ian, as he slipped into the netherworld of aggressive alcohol and drug use. Killing the Bear is his story about what it is like to be a parent of a teen struggling with addiction and what he did about it. Written for parents who are traveling a similar path or those who want to help such families, Killing the Bear provides a personal count and... Uh, the practical ways of surviving this addiction. Okay, thank you and welcome. Andrew. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Paul. Absolutely. So, I uh, have to say, first off, I loved the book. I hope it becomes more widely available, but people can find the book. So, I will have the link to that in my notes of this show for people to purchase it, uh, which I think is a very useful book. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about a little bit about your story, if you're willing to just kind of tell, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and the story. Certainly. Well, as uh, as you read, I worked um, my entire uh, adult career was working in the field of mental health, working with kids that had uh, suffered abuse and neglect, serious abuse and neglect, and I was um, pretty successful in, in a, as a uh, program director for that that program um but in the middle of that career i uh, my son began developing problems with alcohol and drugs and i really didn't know the first thing literally the first thing about what what was causing this um i assume like most parents did um that my son was my report card, therefore it had to be me somehow that something I had missed and I had to solve this problem for him. And uh, almost all the approaches I used, or certainly all the early ones I used, really didn't make things better. In fact, it seemed to make things worse. Um, So I began writing this uh, once I finally got into into a, um, uh, some re- uh, recovery group, a local recovery group, and I I realized that what I was going through I wasn't I didn't intend to write a book. It was more of a journal, and um, I knew what I was going through was significant, and I should be writing this down and, because I wanted to remember this period of my life. Um, and it was and it was interesting those early manuscripts compared to the the way it actually turned out. 
Yes, and in your story, there actually is a happy ending. Yes. I mean, it's still continuing, but right. your son eventually did recover, and you have a fantastic relationship with him at this yeah, point. Yeah, things are much better than when they were when, when, when this book began. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say that, I wanted to spoil that for the audience so they could know that you do this, you know, not every family has success, but you found some ways through going through this really difficult trial that lasted years that did help you. And in the book, I you mentioned a few things already, but you are definitely very confessional about your own bewilderment, um, difficulties understanding what he was going through, and just the sheer amount of complexity of this situation. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt having gone gotten into the, a, a recovery group, I, you know, the, the basis of all recovery, in my view, is honesty. And I think you, you have to be honest with yourselves and uh, other people. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's really healing um, to, to uh, honestly look at things you did or things you missed. I mean, I was, I was a good parent. A lot of parents that, that struggle with this are good parents. They, they don't have the information. They're bewildered. They don't quite understand what in the world has happened. <laughs> To their kid, uh, they feel like some alien came and snatched their their son or daughter away and replaced them with somebody else. Uh, and it's um, it's you know it's an astounding change for the parents, and they're just uh, at a loss. And I certainly was. I think in some ways, it took me eight years to actually get into a recovery group, which is longer than I would recommend. But right. <laughs> I, I showed up when I was ready. But my professional background in some ways was an impediment. Uh, there was a certain amount of arrogance and pride and shame. You know, how could I have a son with this this kind of problem? But I had to get past that. It took me, took me eight years to get to the point where I showed up at a meeting and began really listening. Um, but, you know, I made it there, and, and, and it that didn't cause my son to get better. He did that, but it allowed me to get out of the way and allow him to uh, experience recovery without my interference. Uh, a lot of good points were made right there. And I think one of the points that I really want to emphasize at the beginning here is that when you have a child or a loved one or anyone in your family who's suffering from an addiction of any sort, whether it be alcohol and drugs like we're talking about or pornography or gambling or internet or food or whatever it is, or a phone for that matter, uh, there, there can be a lot of shame around that and feelings of responsibility. And especially you being a mental health worker, we see all this data, the Adverse Child Experiences Study, when children are abused or neglected, all of these hard medical outcomes are worse, uh, more likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, more likely to be obese, more likely to have risky sexual behavior, be arrested, um, have higher blood pressure, all of these things, right? So knowing that information, it's like, well, uh, my child in all, you know, from, from an objective medical model was not an adverse child experiences study. He wasn't abused. He wasn't neglected. My wife and I, this is what I'm reading from the book, my wife and I tried our best. We sent him to a good school. We... Uh, invested all this time and effort and parenting and character and and it, you had involvement in your local church and all these other clubs and sports from what I read from the book and yet then there was this all of a sudden like you said like all of a sudden my son isn't who I th- who I thought he was or who who I think he sh- 
should be considering the environment he's been in, you know, as a social worker, uh, his environment, you know, some things influenced his environment that were outside of your control. And as you know, that's part of being a parent is letting go of control little by little, uh, like you said, getting out of the way. But um, I think it was very difficult. I could read in your in your story, it was very difficult to face how bad it really was, because this is not something you ever had expected to occur based on the lifestyle choices that you made. Yeah, it's, you know, I, it, it's good for us to take into account what happens between a parent and a child because it is significant. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, that um, the outcomes for, for children as they grow into adulthood are, are always determined by what a parent does or doesn't do. We certainly can have some influence. Uh, but as you said, I was I was six years on the school board. I was a school board president at a at a small Catholic school. Uh, served as athletic director. I served on community boards to to um, help with different projects. So I felt I was doing the right things. Uh, we were in, deeply involved in our kids' education. Uh, that was just part of the requirement at the private schools that our kids went to, and yet. That yet this happened, and uh, um, I wasn't sure really how to deal with it. I, uh, I first of all, I, I did what most parents do. I blamed other people. That's always, unfortunately, what what, what most of us do. I, when something goes really wrong, you have to find out well who's causing this, and it certainly couldn't be me or my family. So I had to be somebody else. But. Um, and I don't mean to make light of that. But that's that tends to be the uh, what a lot of parents do, and it's natural, but it's not productive. Um, and and that isn't to say you know we have to um, you know blame ourselves entirely, but we have to be honest about what we do, what we know, what we don't know, our own patterns of drinking, uh, our attitudes about drug and alcohol use. Uh, and be honest with what we're seeing. If our if our son or daughter is really changing, for the worse, we really have to be willing to look at that, and not deny that or blame other people for it, but really pursue the help that's out there. Now, I'll tell you that the help that was out there back then, even the help that's out there right now, frankly, is pretty minimal. Um, as as you read earlier, ninety percent of addiction in this country, people that struggle with addiction, 90% of them began using during their teen years, and yet we have very few adolescent programs out there. Uh, and the programming should begin by middle school. That's when it began with my son, uh, his, his experimenting. And, you know, we know that 80 to 90% of the kids that, that struggle by late years in high school began in middle school years. Um, that's something I had no idea of, and most parents don't. They cannot believe their their middle school kid is starting to use. But that's the kids that struggle. That's when most of them most of them begin using. And that's a really good point. I want to jump off of just for a second to go right to brain science. So the younger you use, this is statistics. This is backed up by multiple research studies. The younger you start using regularly, the more difficult usually the addiction substance use disorder is to break. Because I think, from what I've read, um, you're wiring different experiences or different coping skills with the drug or alcohol. You're pairing it. 
and you're pairing it quite young when the brain is really developing. Now, we know from brain science that the new studies are saying that the brain kind of stops its growth pattern around 27, 24 to 27 now, um, before you can still, you know, learn new things, but the it's not generating new cells like it was. Yeah. However, think about middle school, 13, 14 years old. I mean, you're your brain is very much in development. And if you start pairing that with drugs and alcohol, it becomes almost, um, I don't know, part of your part of yourself. Whereas if you start drinking or smoking or using drugs in, as an adult, um, you remember what it's like not to. Um, and so, you know, just with brain science, it becomes more difficult. And I think also, like you said, um, it's hard for parents to even fathom that this is going on. And, you know, there's that shame factor. How could I have not known or 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 also um, sometimes uh, shrugging their shoulders? What am I supposed to do? Not let them go anywhere, not let them have a phone, keep them in my basement. You know how you know they're supposed to go into the community. And, you know, there's a network of kids who are experimenting for various reasons, whether it be coping or a thrill seeking or just, you know, thinking that this is the thing to do. Um, they can easily be exposed and, you know, some don't regularly use and they've experimented and that's it. But if you have any genetic disposition for addiction or, um, are going through maybe a rough emotional time, which most teenagers are at some point, yes. at some point or another, they do, uh, they go through their own, uh, because of hormones and growing up and all of this, it can be an easy thing to quell some of your stress. And that's, all of that it can be dangerous. So I think, like what you said, it's it's difficult being a parent because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to become the helicopter parent, and you also don't want to be the parent who's out to lunch and just hoping that things. So how do you how do you navigate that? Especially coming from your story, being so involved in his life, and then all of a sudden here we are, shock. Uh, how could this have occurred? Yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about this, but eventually, I one of the things I had the opportunity to do and the privilege to do was to start uh, an adolescent treatment program at the agency where I worked. Um, and one of the things that that was most interesting to me was um, the the uh, onset of use and parental discovery of drug use uh, was there was a three year gap there. That is, kids would, on average, started using around age 12 or 13, and parents discovered it at age 15 or 16. That was almost universal, that three-year gap. And and many of these were very good parents. They had other kids that did very well um, by by all sorts of measures. These, these, were, these were competent, good, caring parents, and yet they didn't see it. And, you know, that was, that was certainly my experience. I didn't know... Um, until I began working in the field, what some of the common uh, behavioral signs, emotional signs, and, and just the physical signs. I learned, certainly by living with the problem, but I wish I had known back then. Um, I used to, when I gave talks at local schools and I would talk about the signs of use, there would be parents in the audience and I would just see their jaw drop or their head drop. When I talked about certain things, it was like the light bulb went on. Oh, that's what my kid's doing. That's what's going on. Um, they aren't though. The signs are not that that uh, difficult to detect if you know what to look for. And uh, 
I, I certainly wish I had known that. And one of the things I do, I did in those groups was to share with parents uh, some of the things that would tell you if you see several of these signs, you you should begin to um, uh, investigate whether or not your son or daughter is using. And that's a good point. And I think um, I want to talk about a few of those signs because I also think a lot of times a parent will bring a uh, a child to a therapist. And they don't want family therapy. They want the child to go to individual therapy, which is more common for adults. Adults often go to individual therapy to work through something in their life, and that's what they do. And they sometimes go to couples therapy. But with children, uh, we've talked already that um, off the mic that we think that it's absurd to not involve the family system unless the family system is the one abusing the child, which does happen. You you worked in that environment for a while, but in your uh, your career, but if the, if the family is a functioning family and non-abusive and the members are trying to help, it's very important to get those the parents into the therapist, even if the therapist sees the child independently for some sessions, but to always have that family therapy component because of various reasons. The, child's, the child only has a limited view of what's going on. And also, a lo- going off that, my point was a lot of therapists and doctors and psychiatrists don't see it. Because they see all of the, maybe some of these moodiness or isolative behaviors as major depression, which it might also be co-occurring, but um, what is the obstacle to cure for the major depression? Is there major drug use going on um, that's completely altering the mood uh, as well? So can you talk a little bit about those signs for yeah, first I'll talk about my own experience. Oh, you know, there. one of the things in terms of this question, though, it's a it's a very important area for for parents to be aware of. Um, you know, one of the things my son started using marijuana in eighth grade, began experimenting, it, and by the time I discovered it, three years later, it had really become a larger part of his life. Well, one of the effects of marijuana use, chronic marijuana use and he and he wasn't using the low level he was using the stuff the kids would call chronic but just much more potent uh, forms of marijuana it affected it affects their ability to concentrate and to learn so uh, he was struggling in school so I um, took him to see a a, a a local counselor who specialized in treating ADHD and sure enough he had ADHD I was told that and and prescribed stimulant medication to, uh, Ritalin or Adderall I don't recall which it was some some time ago but things didn't get any better because um, that was not the problem uh, I I joked I would later on that he he did have ADHD he had always drunk and high disorders what he had right uh, he was getting stoned um, every day th- throughout the day and it's difficult to learn, and that's that's what needed to be addressed. Now, as you said, there are co-occurring disorders, but one of the problems with chronic aggressive drug use is that it it always looks like mental illness. Mm-hmm. It'll look like depression, anger, and certainly it'll look like family dysfunction if you see the whole family. Um, the family they may it may be a loving and caring, non-abusive. Uh, non-neglectful family, but when addiction hits a family, the normal course of events, unless the parents are in recovery and really know what they're dealing with, is to become pretty dysfunctional, because uh, as the as the uh, as the 
teen um, who is struggling with drugs and alcohol can't cope with life because they can't manage things, the parents and other family members fill in and try to take care of things for them and um, uh, and it looks very dysfunctional and a family therapist could look at that and say well maybe the kid's using because the parents are so angry well maybe they're angry because the kid's using and um, so it's important to really do an important it's important to do a diagnostic workup with not just the 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 team but also the family when we ran uh, the the program that I was involved with uh, we spent the, uh, two hours doing an assessment with the team, but two hours with the family, and then we would get them together because it was, it wasn't that the family had caused this; uh, they don't cause the addiction to occur, but they can delay the day of reckoning that every alcoholic or addict needs to get better by by enabling, by blaming other people, by uh, all sorts of things that parents typically do. And uh, and it's yes, and I want to go into that because the family system changes. Uh, we know from all the literature about you know there was a lot of literature in the seventies and eighties about families of alcoholics, right? And the and, you know focusing on the father or the mother as the alcoholic and all the roles people took. Well, let's just reverse that for a second. When when the child is dealing with an addiction and that's the primary identified patient, as we say. Um, the family system tries to adjust and adapt. They're doing the best they can, but they might be reacting out of fear, guilt, shame, uh, thinking they can help a lot. So what what you said, enabling, but a lot of parents don't see it that way. They say, I'm the parent. This is a minor. I've got to do my best. I've got to help, help, help. I've got to make sure that they're okay. And I got to make sure they're not emotionally distraught. And I've got to listen to their complaints. And I've got to, you know, be there for them because otherwise I'm a failing parent. And what you said right there, parents don't see it. That's the positive side. The shadow side to that is enablement and codependence, where my my feelings as a good parent are dependent on how well my child's doing and how well my child's doing. I need to be filling in these these uh, gaps or difficulties. You know, school, whether it be school or achievement or ability to do well in something or cope with something i've got to help them cope but it becomes too much so then the child you know when they're little you really need to help a child when they're really small you got to help them walk you got to help them learn to talk you got to help them make sure they don't stick their fingers in outlets make sure they don't eat something they're allergic to make sure they don't go outside at night by themselves all these things but when you get to teenage years it's a little bit different it's a it's a little bit of both you got to make sure they're safe but what about what about letting them have the correct dose of stress so that they're in the zone of proximal development and learning to cope emotionally and learning to do their homework and learning to face difficulties. And when they are doing something such as drug use or something wrong or being disrespectful, holding them accountable, how, how do we do that in a way that's balanced and lets them experience stress, but not too much stress, you know, not on the, not on the, you know, a lot of parents are reacting to that old world parenting that was authoritarian. They don't want to do that. So then they go a little, they go too soft. They're running, like, I think there was something in your book. I was running around with pillows, catching him when he fell. Um, And so that's a difficult piece for parents. And so then, okay, well, I'll bring him to the therapist. Well, if the therapist doesn't understand that you have to also deal with the family system, because they're treating this child like an adult client 
And adult clients, yes, the family system could be very helpful to bring in, but a lot of times the, the adult does not want to bring their family system in, and that's their choice. For teenagers, unless it's an abusive situation, that shouldn't be a choice. That should be part of the treatment plan to have the family in, even if the family comes alone without the child, just to get some insight of what's going on. And hopefully best practice bringing them all together and doing some sessions. But that piece right there, I think you said delaying, you know, delaying the day of reckoning or the day of facing what's going on. And I think parents don't know they're doing it. And and it's very difficult to unravel that because of the multiple complexities. So can you elaborate yeah, on that? Parents jumping in to try to help out you know, unfortunately, the word enabling has become used so commonly that it's almost lost its its meaning. I, you know, and so part of it, the way to understand this is really jumping in to try to help, but the help is really not helpful. Um, one of the most interesting things I found in going to recovery groups were adults who uh, started using as teenagers who would tell you that I'm 45 years old, I have a job I'm a competent professional but I'm emotionally I'm 14 years old I've mm-hmm. never really grown up because part part of adolescence is learning you know you've been told all your life as a hopefully as a kid you're the best thing since sliced bread we love you you could do anything high school and the adolescent years the time to find out that's really not true but you're good at some things let's find out what those are and let's really develop those but also learning how to cope with with disappointment and loss uh, frustration, uh, joy, all the whole range of feelings without falling apart. And unfortunately, if you, if they've been coping with drugs and alcohol as a way to to deal with these feelings, they they really don't grow up emotionally, and that's that that's a real risk. Parents don't do this intentionally. They sense at a basic gut level that there's something really wrong, and I want to help out. So they help out in ways they've been doing all their lives with their with their younger kids, and it's not helpful. It, it's helping them stay stuck. It's helping them stay uh, involved with drugs and alcohol because they're really they really aren't being challenged. Now it's you know the way out of this is not easy. It's not easy for the teen, especially because of the paucity of services that are available to teens out there. We unfortunately in our culture we wait till adults are almost completely broken and grudgingly provide detox services and and, uh, uh, you know, maybe some counseling service, but really not, it's not offered graciously and willingly and, and at a level that's needed in our culture. And I don't know what it takes with the opioid crisis we have right now, what it takes to get people's attention that we need to do something about this. But anyways, the, uh, the point is parents mean well, but there, there aren't many services out there, resources out there. And, uh, so that you know they they try to handle it on their own in ways that really don't help yeah i think that's a very good point and we will talk at the end more about what services are available and some of the support groups parents can get involved in for free if they can't afford services and some of the i mean there's also books at libraries and this book isn't that expensive you can probably afford this no matter what your income level um and some things that we will kind of go to the solution side but i think I think you're hitting on a macro issue, which is we have a cultural trouble in the U.S. with people growing up emotionally. There's a lot of reasons to not grow up emotionally. We don't have an agreed upon 
uh, entry point. I mean, we say at 18, you're, you're grown up, you can do what you want now, you're emancipated, and you can buy cigarettes and whatever. But uh, there's not, we don't have an agreed upon way to have a child grow up emotionally. And so there's a lot of complexities. And I mean, you can read in the literature, there's countless books on this about how other cultures used to do it traditionally, and how um, some parts of our culture do it and uh, ways to do it. But I would say that that's not mainstream. I would say that that's not what is in the news as much, uh, in the media especially. Uh, that's that's a complex issue, and you said the way out of this is difficult. So once it starts, parents are, you know, m- might be panicking uh, and uh, not knowing what to do at all and just looking desperately for help. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. I wanted to to ask you some more, maybe to share a little bit more about your story and what you did do, um, even throughout, you know, we've talked about the difficulties not seeing it, all, you know, it got to the point where he got arrested and it was still difficult to see it. You tried, uh, I don't want to give away the whole book, but you tried a multitude of different types of therapies with him um, that basically went nowhere because they didn't address the family system. Um, that's part of the reason. Right. Uh, which you found out from Hazelden was an important aspect which you brought into your program but what are some things that maybe brought you to the point where you changed the way you were working with your son and all of that well actually oddly enough failure helped uh, my, my failed <laughs> attempts to to do things and i did what most parents do when i when he my son first got arrested i screamed and demanded he stop and and uh with no appreciation of how far along he was with his drug use, he had, he was not just experimenting; it was more, more than that. And um, so my screaming really just—he endured that, probably got high, and then, uh, and then ignored that. I, you know, when the problem didn't go away, um, and, and this was this was odd because he was a he was a great kid growing up. He I never had difficulties with him listening or or following, you know, the rules of the house. So this is a whole new thing. So I thought this screaming would work. Well, it didn't. So I eventually took him to a therapist when he got arrested again, and um, uh, this therapist treated it as a ADHD problem, which if you don't understand what the problem is, the, you're not going to come up with the right solution. He didn't need stimulant medication to be able to study better. He wasn't interested in stimulant medication. He was interested in marijuana. He wanted to get, he wanted to mellow out. He didn't want to get, you know, worked up. Um, you know, eventually, I mean, I, I, um, you talked about parents taking taking it easy on their kids with, with the enabling. I certainly did that, but I also, at a certain point when that doesn't work, you know, you revert back to the screaming. And so I, I did what most parents did. I screamed and I enabled, I enabled and I screamed. I I enabled because I felt bad about what was going on. I screamed because I got frustrated and I enabled because I felt guilty about the screaming. Um, I, I eventually found myself going to, after about eight years of dealing with this, going to a mixed AA Al-Anon meeting, which was odd because I heard about this through my daughter. My my oldest daughter uh, told me about this meeting. I said, well, this 
I had done a little research on AA and, and the whole 12-step movement. I said, there's no such thing as a combined AA and Al-Anon meeting. He goes, she said, well, you know, maybe there isn't, but I went to it last night, so maybe you ought to. <laughs> and, I, and I did go, and it was uh, that was very helpful for me because um, I was able to listen to people that were in recovery who had had problems like my son had uh, earlier in their life and they weren't angry they weren't bitter they were some of the most honest decent people uh, and I needed to see that I needed to see people could get beyond their addiction and waiting inside every person struggling with addiction was a great person waiting to come out or at least I, I came to believe that maybe that's not true but an awful lot of people they're great people waiting to come out but uh, they just need need to get into the the recovery process. I needed to see that. I needed hope. You know, I I often tell parents, your son or daughter needs limits and boundaries. That's really important. You need to be learn learn to say no, and that and it takes a lot more love to say no than yes at at times. But they also need hope, and we need hope, and uh, we need to go to places of hope, and that that was a place of hope for me to see. People can get better. They can become not only okay, they can become great people with, if they embrace the recovery process. And a lot of them were in therapy as well. Um, so you know, I, by this time I was reading a lot about addiction, trying to understand this. It's just the way I cope with things. I want to understand. Once I got past the denial and understood what I was dealing with, and if it's addiction, sooner or later you'll know. Sooner or later, no matter right. what, they get sloppy. They don't cover up their tracks nearly as well as they did in the early years. And you will know unless you're absolutely blind to it. But uh, I certainly you know, knew what I was dealing with. I was studying it. But I learned so much by just listening to addiction coming from people that were struggling with it. Everything I learned in those books was verified by what I heard these people talking about. It was... Uh, so I, you know, I've, I've read everything I can get my hands on. I mean, I just because the, the topic fascinates me, but but I learned just as much by listening to people talk about their own struggles. And uh, so, you know, eventually, um, after about four years of going to that that recovery group, one of the there was a story in there. Um, the, the the guy that founded the group, he's he's since passed away, but. He talked about his own um, uh, situation with his getting into recovery and, and getting into treatment and recovery, and how his wife waited 24 years, oh my, uh, patiently, for him to ask for help uh, because he wasn't abusive, he wasn't an unpleasant person, but he was an alcoholic. Clearly, was, and his wife knew that because uh, she was in recovery herself, and she knew. Uh, she had to ask him if he really wanted help. He had to ask for help, and she had to say, you know, say, do you really want it? There was something about that story that just resonated with me. And when my son reached a critical point, I had been going to the, these, this meeting for about four years. Um, he had been on a day-and-a-half bender and, and was really suicidal, um, just like most people struggling with addiction will be sooner or later. 
Um, my daughter brought him over, and and he asked for help. And I said, do you really want it? I was kind of like the same scenario I had heard. And um, and he, he said, yeah, I do. And my daughter about fell off her chair when she heard me say that because she knew that I had been in this pattern of trying to shove recovery down his throat for eight years in one way or the other, demand that he go to recovery and this and that. Uh, so for me to be asking, do you really want help, um, when he was asking for it, uh, kind of floored her, but it was really the approach that that worked. Um, because I had come to the conclusion, I, you can be supportive of someone's recovery, but you can't author it for them. They, they need to be the author of their own recovery. You can be a cheerleader. You can, you can be supportive. You can, you can uh, provide resources. I, my wife and I paid for the treatment. By that time, I had decided, you know, the boundaries I had set was uh, I wasn't going to pay for lawyers, wasn't going to pay for fines, but bona fide treatment, absolutely. And we were lucky enough to find a good treatment program. And um, what was great about this treatment program, uh, unfortunately, it's not around anymore, but it was, what was so great about this was the ongoing family involvement. We could go there uh, for an hour and a half session on Wednesdays and if we could stay and do the afternoon session as well I went to both every week and um, it was it was so helpful to be uh, at the other end of the treatment you know experience being a client as a as a family member but going through that process uh, uh, family treatment these were huge meetings and at times it seemed a little chaotic but it was so helpful. I learned so much, even when they weren't focusing on my son or us. Um, you know, the the honesty, the clarity, um, uh, was was so helpful. And that's when my son really began. You know, several weeks into that, he said, "You know, my name is Ian, and I'm an alcoholic." I was floored. And you know, it wasn't things didn't work perfectly. There were relapses. There were there were some challenges. Some relapses for me, where I was hovering over him, uh, which is not uncommon either. Um, but uh, you know, he he made steady, ongoing pros, uh, progress, and he's he's doing well now. Life isn't perfect, but it's going very well. Yeah, and I'm glad you're bringing that up because there was a long road. This yes. is not an easy road, but I did hear some things, which was as the parent. We can't just focus on the patient or the or the person who's got the addiction. We've got to focus on ourselves too. We got to take care of ourselves. We got to educate ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves, and we may even need therapy ourselves or somebody to talk to about it because of the multitude of factors. With your son, I heard you hit some key points. Eventually, my boundaries were: I will not pay for lawyers. I'm not paying for fines. I'm not bailing him out of his poor decision making or getting arrested or whatever. I'm gonna I'm going to pay for treatment. Um, so it's difficult for parents to set these boundaries because what if they go homeless or what if they are locked up for six months or what if they're uh, in trouble? Uh, shouldn't we shouldn't we help them and, and, and pay for the lawyer? We have the means uh, or um, shouldn't we prevent them from going down further? And I think there it, it's not a yes or no question. It's what we have to figure out how to emotionally support them, like you said, um, encouragement, um, 
and we can help with the point of treatment and we can help with like I've heard some parents say I'll give hugs food and treatment I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pay that they, they wreck their car again I'm not giving them a car well that's impeding them economically well guess what else is impeding them economically their addiction and it will continue even if they get another job even if you get them another car they're gonna lose it because if you don't treat the root cause it's gonna continue to pop up so it's difficult because part of this is it's a huge risk. Uh, when addictions involve, people die. Right. And so how are we going to feel if our son actually or our daughter dies from addiction and we were following the boundaries? Well, they could also die from addiction because you bailed them out, put them, put them back in a nice apartment, didn't pay for treatment, gave them a bunch of food and some resources, and they spent and they leveraged that to buy more pills and they overdosed. It's a risk. We, we don't have control at a certain point. But there are things, and there are books, and there's hope. I'm getting back to hope. There are things you can learn. There are things you can do. There's support you can do. And I think that's a hard thing for parents is that, yeah, your your child needs the following, and you need to make sure they, as much as you can, encourage them to get into treatment. Like you said, not you demanded, but we whatever we can do, right, to leverage their ability to continue their drug lifestyle, we have to take away that support. But we do increase support of quality time, maybe food, hugs, encouragement, not lecturing. Very difficult to do because you want them to succeed, but they have to choose it. They have to choose recovery. They have to choose to admit to themselves what's going on. And we have to get out of the way. Um, Also, while walking the line of here are my boundaries, and here are some resources. And the resources are directing them toward hopefully finding the right treatment or the right way to recover. That's a difficult path, and it's not easy. That's what you said. And um, I appreciate you sharing that aspect of it. Yeah, it's not easy for the for the teen or the young adult struggling with the drugs and alcohol, and it's not easy for the family. You have to, there are risks, but there, you know, you have to pick your risks. And it may, it may not seem that risky to continue to enable and protect and uh, bail somebody out. Uh, but the risk is, yeah, I, I had a friend that was in her, in her 90s that was still treating her 65-year-old son as if he was 13 that's that to me is more tragic than just about anything you run the risk of your kid of your 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 adult never ever growing up and um but you know it's it when you're dealing with drugs or alcohol the risks are very high and the consequences there's no guarantee that when you set limits and boundaries uh no matter how appropriate that they're going to survive it they may not but you have to ask yourself, how well is it working for us now, the way we're doing things now, by paying their mortgage, by bailing them out, by blaming other people, by doing all these things? And, you know, unfortunately, there's no book out there that tells you exactly what to do, what boundaries, what are the appropriate boundaries. A lot of it has to be developed in the context of the relationship. What's enabling for one person may not be for for another, or one family may not be for for another, and sometimes you have to, you know, just try things out. If it's enabling, you'll know it. I mean, enabling basically is do, drug, aggressive drug and alcohol use always leads to some some high costs and pain. 
If you're paying that and they're not, they're never going to have a motivation to get better. And so it's a matter of almost basic economics. Who, who's paying the freight? If you're paying it, why, sh- why should they uh, make any changes? Um, sooner or later, of course, you, you can't pay enough. Uh, the judge doesn't care what you think or feel when they get arrested. Their bodies um, will begin to break down. You know, one of, the, one of the big challenges with adolescent use is so many of the things in, in the adult model that, that we assume were motivations to change, you know, uh, restoring your health, restoring your career, your marriage, your standing in the community don't apply to teens. And yet we really haven't adjusted the model to, to uh, you know, what, what does work with teens, what does resonate with them, what, you know, what makes them think maybe I should change things. And I think that's the interesting part. Uh, I'm glad you actually covered a bunch of things I wanted to cover, which is, yeah, I mean, I, I worked in the Adolescent Community Reinforcement Approach, which is an outpatient program, otherwise known as ACRA or ACRA, the family models called CRAFT stands for something. Can't remember exactly. Um, and the author of that is Dr. Robert Myers and his wife, um, Susan. And uh, Getting Your Loved One Sober is their book that's written for anybody. But the treatment program, when we were working with teenagers, we focused, I mean, these were teenagers that weren't in like inpatient or, you know, like the situation where you need to go inpatient, right? They were casually smoking marijuana and it was starting to affect their school performance. So we would focus on family, um, getting the family involved. Uh, the parents have more the parents have more power than they think, but the way they think they have power is usually incorrect. It's a fear-based reaction. It's a this is how my parents did it. This is how I think they should do it. It's they need guidance, and there's no one size fits all. But you need guidance as as parents. Uh, the second thing we did is we really worked with the kid on. I don't know, a lot of different things for strength base. What are you good at? What do you like? Um, trying to get them back into activities that they they liked. Because not because we were we were sure that that would be the fix, but it's one of the things. If they were enjoying more pro-social activities, it's less likely they were going to do as much drug use, harm reduction. Not every kid, that doesn't apply to every kid. But it did, it did help a lot of our kids who were more casual users. They weren't like the really, really addicted ones at that point. Um, changing the family dynamics was huge. Giving them choice, um, meaning like uh, we would do activities that are similar to emotional motivational interviewing, but we would just we would use we would weave in psychoeducation, but give them choice versus the old drug programs of Dare and things like this, or even some of the intensive outpatient groups are like kids. Drugs are bad. Shouldn't do them. They're killing you. They're bad for you. They're gonna ruin your life. Blah blah. Scare tactics doesn't work. They're still forming their identity. And what's a greater way to form your identity but then to rebel against authority when you're a teenager? That's that's a natural a natural inclination. You want to start, you're on your way to becoming your own person, your own autonomous being. You don't want people telling you what you should do with your life. You want to make that choice. So we would do uh, activities where we'd look at the pros and cons of using. And they'd say, what do, you, what do you mean looking at the pros? Well, what are you getting out of it? What are the What are the parts you like about it? And we would go through every aspect. What are the parts you like about it with your feelings? What are the parts you like about it, how it makes your body feel? What are the parts you like about it with how you think? What are the parts you like about it with um, your friends or using here or doing that? And you would get so much insight when we asked that positive question. 
And then we'd ask, what do you feel like the long-term negatives are? What do you feel the long-term negatives are in all these areas? School, family, financial, legal, um, friendships. And they would tell you. I mean, if they were ready. You know, some of the ones who were more addicted, we had to send to higher levels of care because they needed detox or whatever. They weren't appropriate for outpatient care. They would say, nothing, nothing, everything's fine. Everything will be fine. Drugs are great. I mean, all my heroes do drugs and they're fine, you know, until they OD. But so a lot of kids would, they would start to get out of it and just start that kind of harm reduction, which is one approach, but that doesn't work with everybody, especially with those kids who are starting really young and are using chronically, like your, your son, he used almost every day, as far as we know. Um, and so that was one model we used, but we had to incorporate the family and we had to treat the child differently. A lot of the older models, they say, uh, you know, they work for adults taking responsibility and all this sort of thing, but they don't work for, for teens. Uh, and so that was one of the ways we worked with people on the lower end of the risk scale. Uh, on the higher end of the risk scale, absolutely my, my hand is in the bucket with safety first, getting them uh, inpatient if they need to be, getting the family involved and educated, family strategic therapy, um, working on the patterns, working on every, every, any type of safety measure, um, not uh, taking away the enablements, enablements and, uh, that the parents had been doing in their life. Um, but there's not one size fits all and it is a discovery journey and it is an investment of your time and your energy. But I think getting involved and getting educated and I'm going to read something you said here uh, will start to use that pent-up energy and that fear and those sleepless nights to do something that's productive and that involves you as the parent. So here's an interesting thing you said in the book. As a lifelong Catholic, I had plenty of exposure to communal worship, and for the most part, I found it rewarding. However, nothing in my religious life compared to the simple yet penetrating honesty and support I found in Al-Anon. At times, I shared my thoughts, and at other times, I just sat and listened. It didn't matter. Either way, I was healing. For parents such as myself who were caught up in feelings of fear, anger, guilt, and isolation, I'm not sure there is anything more helpful than Al-Anon meetings. The program offers meditations, stories, and personal insights into, into how countless others have learned to deal with these feelings and emerge with a sense of hope and peace. You hear how others found themselves overwhelmed and immobilized by these feelings, and more importantly, how they got beyond them. So there's that hope factor. Yeah. There's education and hope and behavior change. Yeah, you brought up a lot of very interesting points that brings back some some memories of working with, with teens when we ran that program. And, uh, you know, one of the things I used to say um, um, was the problem with drugs and alcohol is that they work until they don't. And I would tell the teens, you know, I'm not going to tell you you didn't have a good time, that you didn't make friends, that you didn't. Because the problem with the D.A.R.E. program and programs like that is that when their, 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 their reality doesn't match with what you're telling them, they just laugh it off. And it makes, it, it, you're, not, you're not hitting home with them. But when you, when you take the approach that you talked about, which is you know, what did you get out of it? And then what, what were the losses? And you can honestly look at those things. Then they can really begin to think about, about it. But, you know, the one lecture that we – I had lectures, but they were really more discussions with a group of kids. 
but um, I was I would say you know it's not enough to quit using drugs and alcohol. I'm not asking you to do that. Let's find out what what you got out of that and what how you're going to get that differently without them, because uh, you you can't just stop using. You have to figure out how you're going to fill that void with something that's healthier. And uh, I can't tell you how much the kids. How, that just caught their attention because they were so used to the egg being broken in the pan and and, and how laughable that was. Right. Uh, but what did make sense to them is, yeah, I got something out of it, but it's not working for me anymore. And, you know, you talked about a strength-based approach. Our view was if they weren't having fun and treatment, they weren't getting better. You have to learn how to enjoy life again and and to do it without mood-altering substances. And it can be done. Uh, but, you know, it takes some persistence, um, you know. Um, and the family piece of it, you read the section about my experiences in Al-Anon. You know, it's important to convince parents um, that they need treatment themselves. They need help and support themselves. They need hope. Um, in order to convey hope to their kid, they need to be hopeful themselves. So they, they, they need to recover from what they've been through. I, especially lately, I can't tell you how many parents I've seen that they're suffering from PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, um, because some of the some of the stuff their their kids have been involved in is so shocking to them, so alarming. I mean, federal agents showing up at their house, or drug dealers showing up at their house, just major transactions going on in their residence. I mean, or, uh, you know, knowing people that have lost their kids, um, you know, the stakes are seem to be higher than ever. And, and parents, you know, one of the most interesting things we had in that program that we ran was the, uh, when the kids would get clean and sober, and we could prove it, These, we, we, we drug tested them, they were, and, they, and they were getting better. Their parents' the initial reaction was, great, this is working. And then within a week or two, if they were not going to Al-Anon or some equivalent support group, they would start wondering, how long is this going to last? And they would, mm-hmm. they would begin mm-hmm. obsessing about their recovery, like they had obsessed about their 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 drug use. And uh, they really, in a sense, really weren't getting better when their kids were. So it's it's really important for the family to recognize, I've been damaged by this. When addiction hits a family, everybody suffers. Not just the addict or alcoholic, everybody suffers. It's a shock to the whole system, and and we all have to learn how to do things differently. Yeah, I think that is a great summary of what I was going to, yeah, talk about before we get into a little bit of talking about the drugs. I wanted to say one more thing is that when we were working with these kids in the strength based approach, one of the things we were trying to do is get their interest. What what interests you and all of the kids, if you could finally get them there. And we, I, I had a list of 20 pages, I, I kid you not, of activities. And I had them go through and tell me, interested, not interested, sort of interested, maybe, and just try to find anything. And, you know, a lot of these kids, they wanted to become a singer. They wanted to become uh, a teacher. They wanted to become a sports player. They wanted to, they were still dreaming like children. And these are adolescents, and they and, and children are supposed to dream, and they and this is another factor I found. That, like you said, there's all there's this great person inside waiting to come out, and they just wanted to achieve something, but they had something going on, whether it's self esteem or anxiety about 
doing trying something or the lack of discipline it takes to practice um, and the, or lack of resources that, uh, to be able to get into something they wanted to do, um, that they just felt, I'm a loser. So my identity is I'm a loser and I'm never going to be good enough. So I might as well have fun in life. And the way to have fun in my neighborhood is to use drugs and alcohol. And my parents, they, they say, you know, you got to get a job, get out there and get a job. The, the world economy is more competitive. You need to get your butt up there to school and get an education and these kids are like wait a minute i i wanted to i want to try this i want to try that and they don't know there's no guidance you know or not no guidance but little guidance on following a dream and how do you get there and and how do you how do you try that and so i i had so many kids tell me that was actually one of the turning points when they just decided to really start using was i just felt my dreams were over my life was over and I was going to be just having to struggle like my parents economically or just work all the time. And I just didn't didn't like it. And the, and the parents didn't know how to talk to their kids because they're stressed out with their job, even if they had a good job, let's say. They had a good job. Well, hey, you know what? It's it's hard to buy a house and a car. You need that. You got you to gotta really get an education. You gotta, there's a lot of people trying to go to college and become whatever. And, and you got to pick that. And, and, and hearing that message from the, and the kids resisted that. And so it's hard for parents to parent in a way where your fears and your countertransference about what is going to happen to your child don't dominate the conversation. Instead of finding out what special, unique thing is my kid bringing into the world or capable of, and how do I cultivate that without enabling them not to study because they're just going to be a dancer or whatever it is. But balancing that and encouraging that, and, and I remember, and I worked in a very difficult neighborhood, so that was more of the discussion there was those parents were stressed out economically, and that was all coming out of the children. You know, they were absorbing it because children absorb what you do. And that's a hard thing for parents. I mean, just as, you know, not too long ago, you were an adolescent and you were a 20-something, and now you've got a child, and that child is, they don't listen to you so much what you say. They watch what you do, and that's and their brains are soaking it up and that means <laughs> if you've got stuff you got to work on i think that's where you got to start besides getting your kids safe i mean but we got to you know if for parents who are trying to prevent their kid from having an addiction it starts with you it starts with what are your habits it starts with what are your weaknesses what are your sore spots are you trying to better yourself or are you just getting by you know punching in and out of your time card are you happy are you do you have joy and that is you know and then when the, and that's a hard one and i'm not putting this all on parents you know that your child like i said what is the unique thing they're bringing into the world well what if their unique thing they're bringing into the world is i want to become a marijuana distributor i mean they have autonomy and choice so much younger than we give them credit for and i think that is why people are blindsided by this middle school use and the more and more I read and the more I've worked with, with younger kids, I work with a lot of older people now, I, I go, you know what? That's not surprising me anymore because somewhere around 10 or 11, 12, they start going, wait a minute, what do I want to do? What, what do I want to be? And they start dreaming a little bit. And you know that? That's where the parents' control starts to slip. They're no longer this little kid you take care of and make sure they don't bump their head. They are starting younger and younger. And we... I, I feel like in our culture, I still see it all the time. Um, I, I have I have friends or family or whatever. Oh, don't talk at that. Don't talk about that around the kids. 
And, and, and okay, I get that for under, but when do we start? When do we start having adult conversations with children? When do we do that? I mean, and that's a cultural issue, I guess. I don't know. What What's interesting, you know, the naming of that program that we worked in, we, we really gave that some thought. It ended up, we ended up uh, settling on the discovery program because that was our, our, our thinking on that was this wasn't, when you're dealing with teens, it's not a matter of recovering something you once had. It's discovering what you can be. In fact, we didn't use the serenity prayer, which is commonly used. And I have no problem with the serenity prayer, but we wanted something more relevant to the program. And it was uh, grant me the courage to discover all that I was meant to be and the kindness to find the best in others today and the days to come. Uh, because we wanted the, the courage to discover and the kindness to support other people in that same process. And uh, like I said, it wasn't enough just to quit using. It was to discover what you were meant to be. And, uh, and recognizing that the, the drug and alcohol use gets in the way of that. And at a certain point, it stops it entirely, and, uh, which, which is the, real, the really sad part. Yeah, and there's countless examples of heroes, you know, for kids. I remember when I was growing up, Kurt Cobain had this great career with his band Nirvana, and the drugs got to him, and then he committed suicide while using heroin. Right. That was the autopsy. Um, we could go countless examples. Just recently, Prince, you know, a couple years ago, uh, he was abusing opiates, and uh, his inner circle uh, didn't force him to get treatment because they didn't know how to confront him. And, and in a caring way. Uh, and so there is there are tragic stories of people with talents, but all these kids have talents inside of them that aren't being expressed. And, the, and we have to, we can't teach them that, but we can help them say, you know what, we believe in you. There's something deep. And that's when we hopefully can get that, that part of them that is sort of inexplicable, that, 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 it, excitement of forming my identity and what do I want to be in this world and start facing some of our fears because it's difficult to do something in this world where you actually um, want to you know put your best foot out there it's it's difficult to do that it's easier to just go with whatever comes so I want to talk a little bit about I know we're, we're I feel like we've got the theme here but I want to talk a little bit just for the parents out there and just whoever wants to listen and other therapists that listen to the show the drugs are an issue we need to talk i mean at i had somebody say once that it's it's not the drugs of the problem it's how you use them and that's true but there's also another truth which is the drugs are different they're more readily available they're more potent than ever the stakes are higher can you talk a little bit about that well um i'm not as current on some of the uh drug issues that as I once was when I worked in that treatment program because the kids filled me in on <laughs> the new stuff going on they, right. they gave me the language and and uh, in a very helpful way but uh, I am still involved with uh, uh, parent groups and so I hear I hear stories and obviously the thing that I'm hearing more and more about are the opioids and uh, that crisis and the, the, the overdoses I've known uh, five families um, that have actually lost uh, their adult children. And uh, in most cases, it's been the opiates. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I, I've been going to meetings really since 2001. Uh, no, no, actually, uh, 
no, it was 19, yeah, it was 2001 when I started. So 18 years, and up until a few years ago, there were no fatalities I had heard about. Now, five in the past several years. So it it's gotten more dangerous, as, as we all know. Um, and you certainly hear about methamphetamines, um, uh, which, you know, it's a, a stimulant that can certainly lead to some horrific consequences as well. Um, the marijuana use, I mean, that was I, I, uh, th- that was certainly the drug that my son got involved with that a lot of young people do, and, and probably, probably more now than ever just because of the legalization and um, the use of medical marijuana. I don't want to get into that, that issue. There's a, that's a very complicated issue, but the bottom line is some of the stigma associated with it um, has, uh, has gone away, so there's higher levels of use, I think, than what we've seen before. But but what's more disturbing is the the potency. You know, one of the more alarming statistics recently uh, that I heard was that in 1992 there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 16,500 hospitalizations for marijuana overdoses. And by 2008, that number was 325,000. 325,000, so a 20-fold increase because of increase in potency. Um, so, um, you know, there was a time when marijuana overdoses were just unheard of, and now we're, we're seeing uh, that's, you know, that, that's changed. And certainly with the vaping, we're hearing more stories recently about some lung illnesses, and there's maybe some THC involvement with that as well. Too early to tell, but... Uh, you know, it's the, um, and, you know, the, uh, although the opiates are getting a lot of attention, we, alcohol is still, cigarettes and alcohol are really the, the most lethal drugs in America. Uh, cigarettes kill about a half a million Americans a year directly, and then alcohol use about 150,000. And not that the other drugs don't kill or damage the lives of a lot of young people, but, uh, those are still the the big two, and they're commonly used by by teens. So, yeah, and so, and that's a that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, there's so many there's so many points in here, and the opiates, yeah, are very dangerous. I actually had a friend from high school who was a very successful musician, OD, last two years ago on uh, on opiates. A common scenario, he had stopped using, and then when you go back and take your dose. It's too much, right? And then you got organ shutdown essentially, and you stop breathing, right? Um, and so the stakes are higher in many ways, and the marijuana is more potent. Um, one would hope that you know, fifty years from now, our culture be mature enough to, um, you know, use it responsibly. You know, like the the people in the Netherlands who legalized it so many years ago. Um, when I was experiencing their culture when I was abroad, the people there didn't seem to smoke much. That it was all tourists, and if they did, it was a once a year thing or in low low moderation. And there was uh, there uh, there's still major drug addiction problems over there as well. Um, but you know, uh, there was something you wrote in here. Said one of the greatest risk factors is that a teen or a person doesn't believe that the drug they're using is dangerous. And I think that's the that's actually a, a huge factor when we're dealing with any drug. Obviously, people know opiates and methamphetamines are, and heroin are very dangerous drugs, and they have a stigma attached to them. Um, but people don't believe marijuana and alcohol are dangerous. Now, cigarettes have been, you know, we've 
that there's been a cultural shift on cigarettes, but people still smoke anyway. Right. Um, but marijuana and alcohol and, you know, some of the synthetics, synthetic drugs are a whole nother lecture we could go into that are widely available legal legally right now. You can order them on the Internet. It's very, very dangerous. Um, bath salts and all of that. Uh, but but the marijuana, I can't remember. You you wrote something in here. It's like so much more potent than it was in the 60s and 70s. And so there's an attitude towards it um, where a lot of parents just see like, oh, well, that's just normal kids smoke pot in high school a little bit. I did. I'm fine. Well, right. You were smoking yeah. THC grade about 5% or something. Right, 4 or 5%. And and to be fair, you were probably getting a good effect from the CBD, which we've seen is a, can be helpful for uh, anxiety and different things like that without the THC element. And the kids are smoking today now, what, 25, 40%. Um, and in mass quantities, like you said, vaping allows it to be concentrated or wax where you can even get THC levels even higher. So the point isn't uh, a little relaxation um, right. with the psychedelic. It is a, a complete annihilation of your senses. And then the emergency room visits go up because a lot of people get paranoia anxiety right. there's the negative effects of of uh marijuana so it is how it's used and it is the perception of of it and then of course marijuana like other drugs uh you get a tolerance eventually yeah and so uh i don't want to you know it is how it's used you know i'm not trying to make a political statement because i think it could be used responsibly in very low doses by certain people who are not prone to addiction but i don't think that's the majority of people yeah i think that's the minority and so how do you uh, you know uh, how do we how do we deal with it same with alcohol uh, alcohol is glorified right now it's glorified in movies it's glorified in television um, you know, they, they stopped making, uh, letting cigarette companies have commercials on television years ago, right? Well, how many alcohol commercials do you see a week? And alcohol is your identity. Oh, if, you, if you're this type of person, you drink craft beer. If you're this type of person, you drink Bud Light. If you like yeah. this kind of music, you drink Blue Caraco. If you like this kind of vacation, you drink rum. If you go to Europe, you drink whiskey or you drink sangria. You know, there's all of this identity with it. And alcohol, uh, it, it is how you use it, right? But it is a very addicting substance and can lead to various uh, problems. So Yeah, I guess my view, you know, somebody once asked me, what's the most dangerous drug? The most dangerous drug is the one that gets you. And, uh, you know, so it it's obviously uh, drugs like the, the opiates or cocaine or methamphetamines or, or even alcohol have significantly higher risks than others. In terms of uh, with cocaine and stimulants, the the car cardiovascular system is is uh, stressed dramatically. Yeah, with the opiates, they can they can simply fade away and not wake up and and aspirate. And same uh, alcohol withdrawal can be you know people can suffer strokes and and die. But it's really the 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 drug or or um, or the activities that that take over your life. I think it's best understood. One of the most useful books for me was Carolyn Knapp's uh, book, Drinking a Love Story. And she conceptualized alcoholism and addiction as primarily well aware of all the physiological factors, the genetic predisposition. Um, it is still primarily a relationship problem. When when a substance becomes your primary relationship, all other relationships suffer. Your relationship with your loved ones, with your co-workers, with yourself. 
becomes secondary to this substance or this pattern of behavior. If it's a behavioral addiction, everything takes a back seat, and uh, and and that's the, that's the real cost. And I I uh, I found that her her conceptualization was one of the most useful ways of understanding addiction. That uh, as she said, you know, I fell in love with alcohol, and I had to fall out of love because it was it was it was killing me. Uh, and uh but um it, it really her life gradually and it wasn't by plan or design it isn't for anybody you know i i've ne- i have never in all the meetings i've been to and i've been to over a thousand meetings i'm sure in the past 18 years um and met plenty of people that have struggled with drugs or alcohol i have yet to meet one who said you know i woke up one day and said I'd like to be an addict. I'd like to go to jail. I'd like to alienate my family. I'd like to underperform. I'd like, you know, nobody plans on this. It it, it takes over your life because, you know, as I said earlier, the problem with alcohol and drugs is they work, and they they do make you feel better, but there's a cost when it becomes aggressive. That is a very good way to put it because we, you know, on this show, we're not we we were trying to educate people. Because this is about the relationship you have with others, and it's about the relationship with yourself, and and so we, how I how this interview goes, I like to take a stance of education and let people make their decisions, and research. Like you read books, you you worked on this, this is how you're able to write a book, and I and I do like that analogy of it. It is a relationship, and at times. Um, What's at stake? The relationship with yourself. We lose that if you lose that, um, and it's impacted and distorted through whatever drug or you know of choice. That's when you lose judgment. And so it does come down to really being honest with ourselves about if you use any substance at all, whatever you use, alcohol or food, even can be an addiction. But alcohol or drugs or food or whatever, um, what are the pros and what are the cons? And what what do I like about it? And what, what do I not like about it? And am I in denial of my hangover and how that affects my next day? Or am I in reality about it? And I'm, am I okay with that hangover? Or am I okay with feeling um, some short-term memory loss after smoking or, or whatever? Um, and I think that gives people a personal choice. And I think when people... Re- if, if, you don't, if you're not full-on addicted... To something, if you really make it about having an adult decision to use or not use, and it's about you and what you want in your life, I think that's when people can start to be in recovery of whatever it is, or never get to the point of addiction. Um, but if you're not sure what your relationship is to a drug or a substance or a food, and you're it's sort of nebulous or sort of unconscious. That's when there's danger, and if you and if you aren't educated about what you're ingesting, whether it be food or alcohol or drugs, that can be dangerous too, because everything has an effect on us. Um, and usually, it's not a black and white. It's a it's a there's multiple effects, um, and you can classify them how you will. There's the obvious ones we already talked about, but uh, I think that's what it gets down to, and I think that's a that's a difficult thing to. For adults, uh, let alone you know, in, in our culture, to really have that kind of nuanced 
ability to kind of look at a bigger picture, a wider view of what you're doing with your time and your behavior and what you're ingesting. So bringing it back around, that's why it's so important for parents and loved ones of anyone who's got an addiction to start empowering themselves with knowledge and getting that support and learning what they can do and also what isn't useful, which we we found out. And, you know, for you personally, you made those decisions based on what you heard in the meetings and what you read. Um, and so that that's kind of my, my summary. You know, for adults, we can try this way, but there are, you know, clinical, you, you probably need clinical help if you're not sure. If you're not sure what to do, find a professional who is certified in some type of substance um, treatment program or something like that or has a great deal of knowledge and pick up a few books because if you're not sure, it's something's probably not going right. Yeah, if, if you think there may be a problem, it's, it's, worth, it's worth looking at. And, uh, you know, we've talked a bit about the families and, and family treatment. One of the things that's best to understand, I think, for families is that you, you end up possibly becoming addicted to the addict or the alcoholic in your family where you have all the symptoms that they that they do which is you know cravings and preoccupation they're they're focused on the alcohol and drugs you're focused on them withdrawal they they feel lost when they can't use you feel lost when you can't keep an eye on them all the time uh, tolerance they they can tolerate more than ever, and you learn to tolerate behavior you would have never tolerated from others on, on and on. And I think when when parents get to that point and say, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to my, my kid in terms of I can't feel good unless I think they're doing good, that's a perilous way to live. You can feel bad, but if your well-being depends on their well-being, um, that's that's not a good sign. Well, it's a definitely a warning sign. Yes. Uh, and so I think that's a perfect summary of a lot of what we discussed today. And if people want to learn more, Killing the Bear, Surviving Teen Addiction is the book yep. uh, by M. Andrew Tennyson. I'll have the link for that. I really appreciate you coming on the show, but I want to give you a chance to say anything that you feel like you left out that you want to talk to the listeners about. Well, I, I guess the, um, if anything, I... I think it's. I mentioned it earlier, but I'll mention it again. It's uh, it's important to set boundaries and limits for your loved one, to understand that uh, you know you're not helping them sometimes when you think you are, um, but it's it's more important or just as important to provide hope, and and to convey to them that you fully expect them that they're capable of of, of uh, recovery themselves and and. Uh, and the best way for you to, you know, support that is to get into your own form of recovery or therapy, uh, and, and heal yourself. Um, someone once said the best, the best sermon is not a sermon; it's a changed life. Mm. And uh, when they'll they'll see it in ourselves if we get better. Uh, it, it, it's no guarantee they'll get better, but it certainly helps. Absolutely, and what better way to end this but yes um leading by example it's more powerful than any lecture and any book you can throw on someone's desk is a transformed life so i appreciate 
all of your wise words. And I, I thank you for sharing this experience on the podcast. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be interested. Is there um, any way they could email you or is that more through, do you have any sort of marketing way they could email you questions or are you more, you're more just the author at this point? Well, I'm, I'm right now. I, I'm just the author at this point. I, uh, I do have a, a, a Facebook um, account. I frankly have to admit I don't do much with it, but right. it would be a way to get in touch with me. But uh, so, uh, well, you're not active in 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 the uh, treatment center anymore. No, you're you're attending meetings and kind of helping families right. as a service. Right. So I wanted to make sure I offered that up, but I guess I will say, obviously. Um, I run a clinic in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we'll talk about that at the end. So if you have questions for, about this and where to get treatment, um, I will have some links in the show notes. And you can also send me an email and I will do my best to triage. I've got a lot of books I recommend, including this book. Um, I've got uh, different support groups. Al-Anon, uh, Parents of Addicted Loved Ones uh, is a good group. Smart Recovery is a great group. Obviously, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Marijuana Anonymous. Um, there's lots of resources. And finding a treatment center in your area, if you're in, if you're into the treatment part of this, that does a family program. Um, there, that's essential in my view. And if you're looking to, if you're not sure what's going on with your kid and you want to bring them to a therapist. Um, I would definitely recommend finding a, ser- a therapist who uh, specializes or at least has knowledge of substance use issues. And as a parent of a minor, you can always drug test them. That's that's a right. And you can always look at their phone. Uh, that's a right until they're 18. You have a right over what's going on. Just to be sure, because as I always tell parents, we want to set these boundaries. We want to give hope. We want to be encouraging on one hand. On the other hand, there's always a hand over the red button which is this is an emergency, this person's out of control, and they need intervention immediately, and that means the hospital or 911 or a treatment center. So I love how you balanced hope with boundaries. You can't do one without the other. If we give hope, 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 it's false hope. Where, where's the accountability? And if we only focus on accountability, we're, we're, only, we're only hitting one part of it, and there's going to be reactions from that. So if you're out there and you're looking for help, keep looking. And get involved. That's the biggest thing we, we could say from this show. So that's what I got. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Thank you. When I was a good boy, young, with my conscience, There you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Krauss. If you're enjoying it, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. I certainly enjoyed my conversation with Andrew. If you want to check out his book, the link will be in the show notes, Killing the Bear, Surviving Teen Addiction. He's a fantastic writer, and I actually hope he releases uh, some more of his old articles and some other things I know he's writing right now. I believe he's in the middle of writing another book, which I've got to keep on the down low. Until next time, on The Intentional Clinician, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. If 
you're a clinician and you're looking for electronic medical records that are reliable and easy to use, I recommend Simple Practice. If you're interested in trying out Simple Practice, I have a link in the notes of this episode for a 30-day free trial. If you utilize the link and decide to subscribe, this podcast will get a small referral fee. I thank you in advance. Now for the disclaimer. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. And while these are based upon literature they have read and their experience in the field, this should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on this or any other subjects. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with your local counselor in your area. You can make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in Grand Rapids at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting our website, www.healthforlifegr.com. If you want to know more about me, my name is Paul Krauss, and you can find me on my Counseling Supervisor website, where I soon hope to be uh, giving some courses. And I am doing some consulting, though I don't have a website up about this yet. I'm doing some private consulting for people that is not counseling, but just different individuals who are looking to do something creative in their career or in their personal life or making a a large change, and this would be in addition to maybe counseling they're going to or just something different entirely. Um, I'm not doing that for many people. It has to be a special circumstance. And I hope to offer this to organizations as well. I still am doing trainings. Uh, for multiple organizations in Arizona, and I do enjoy those, and I'm looking forward to um, learning how to present the EMDR curriculum, which I'm in training for right now. So thanks for listening. This has been Paul Krauss. I hope you like this podcast.